Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a particular text that addresses something that's really a very radical change, that should radically change the way we live our lives and the way we think about God and our world. So I would invite you to read along with me. Please stand as you are able and turn in your Bibles to Luke. We'll be reading from chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. God, we come before you to this morning as those who need you to be with us. God, I need you. Every heart in here needs you. God, would you awaken us to the ways that we need you that we have not seen? Would you encourage us in knowing that you are enough for us in the needs that we have expressed to you? Would you encourage us all the more to bring our needs to you, knowing that you are, as we already sang this morning, a good, good father? It's just who you are, God. Ingrain that into our hearts this morning. Let it pour out in our lives this week. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This morning's text, as I said, uh, talks about something that's really a radical change, and it may be a little bit difficult for us to see. So uh, before I get into sort of the meat of the text, there's a little bit of background work that we need to do to get ourselves inside the world of the text so we can really hear what's going on. So this morning we're just going to think about the background of the text, and then I want to talk about a new master and new priorities that make up this new kingdom of God. So some background work, a new master, and new priorities. Well, getting right into the background work, uh, this world is different than the world that we inhabit today. There are a lot of things that are not familiar to us. And if we just look at even some of these verses, verse 35, uh, our translation says, stay dressed. But if you go to the Greek, it's a little bit more of sort of a clumsy expression. But basically it says, you need to have your clothing girded up, which sounds very strange today because none of us have probably ever girded up anything in our lives. But that is uh, a reference really to the fact that garments were worn loosely around the house and without a belt. And more to the point, garments weren't really fit for activity without some sort of drawing up and tightening up. These were more, uh, you might think of as lounge type clothing. So tying up of garments with a belt was a way to get ready. It was actually an ancient way of calling you to be prepared. And really this is a reference back to the Passover in Exodus chapter 12 when Moses tells the people there that they need to eat the Passover girded up they needed to be ready to go at any moment because they did not know when the angel of the Lord was coming. And they did not know when God would call them to go out. They needed to be ready. They needed to be girded up. So really this is an image 
of people that are called to be ready to go. If you're a student, have your backpack on. If you're a parent, have your diaper bag. If you're an office worker, have your suit on, be ready to go. Whatever your job is, the call that this text would be making to you is to be ready for work. Be ready to go. This is the more ancient way, again, of calling to be ready. But this is also a different kind of house than most of us inhabit in verse 36. It's saying that the servants should be ready to open the door. So this is a wealthy house. This is a lavish house where you would expect servants to open the door for you when you knocked on the door. There are doormen at this house, not just a servant, but servants, and enough of a house that it would actually merit having people to open the door when you came in. But perhaps most strange to us is this relationship of servant and master, or what really is better translated not as servants, but as slaves. Now, the Greek is douloi, which is a word for slave, and there is a lot of overlap between slaves and servants in the ancient world, but really I think slave is the better context here. So what was slavery at this time in the Roman world? Well, one author defines it this way, which I think is helpful, that Roman slavery may be defined as the absolute subjection of those who are not free. Slaves were under the unqualified power and control of another person. But Roman slaves were not merely forced labor. They were socially excluded. And in a highly honorific society, that is a society based on honor and shame and having more honor and less shame, they lacked honor. And though they did not derive from any particular ethnic group or social class within the Roman Empire, slaves were always of low status within a household, within even a great household. And there was no distinction made between their work and their person. That's important for us to grasp. There was no distinction made between their work and their person. What they did was who they were and nothing more. So there was a very big difference between the head of the household and those who were slaves. The slaves had their lives defined by whatever the head of the household told them that they were to do. They were completely in the hands of another. And more than that, as the definition already spoke to, they were not just an economic asset. Slaves were also a status symbol. The more slaves you had, the wealthier you were. And to actually be wealthy and not have many slaves was sort of a social faux pas. It was like, what are you doing? Why don't, why don't you have slaves? That's what you do. That's how you look strong. That's how you look cool. That's how you're in and with it. So this was a society where slavery was very present. But not only that, it was very socially bound. To be a slave was to have your social identity wrapped up completely in being a slave. There was not a sort of friendship between slaves and masters. There was a relationship, but not like any kind of employer-employee relationship we have today. Not only were they socially degraded, but slaves were considered a kind of living dead. This came from the concept in that culture that slavery was a part of this warring system where slaves were originally the byproduct and the spoils of war, where those that were not killed were sold into slavery. So because you weren't killed, you were the living dead, as opposed to your relatives and family members who may have been actually dead. And so you were handed over into the hands of another as those who were somewhat alive, but not really. They were just slaves. They were no longer human. 
I think if we're going to try and find a modern analogy, it's not an employee-employer relationship today. It's how you would think about Siri or Alexa or Google Assistant. You wouldn't hesitate to ask Siri, Siri, what's the weather? Siri, get me this. Siri, when am I doing that? You just do it. You don't hesitate. That was the same instinct that the Roman world had with slaves. You didn't think twice. You just asked because that's what they were. That's what they do. They're not people. They're programs. That's what we think today. In the ancient world, you would have thought they're not people. They're slaves. They just do it. That's what they do. That's who they are. It's a very different world. So I'm going to reference some of these things and try to tie them into what I think the main message of the text is this morning. But hopefully these help us get a little bit of an orientation into what's going on in this world as we think about what Jesus is saying in the context of masters and slaves. To get into our second consideration, which is really sort of our first point here, which is I think the text shows us a new kind of master in this new kind of kingdom. This parable shows us a new kind of master. And what he does changes everything for everyone around him. It actually changes the society that he is part of. This one event, this one little tipping point, changes so many things in this text. And that is because he is a master who humbles himself. You see this in verses 37 and 38. He serves the slaves. This was completely unheard of in Roman society. There were occasional moments when some people would eat with their freed slaves. Never, ever, ever with your actual slaves. Never. This was completely unheard of. If you used to watch Downton Abbey on PBS, you can think about the upstairs and the downstairs. And there was a particular episode where the head of the house came downstairs and the people were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why are you down here? What did we do wrong? There is not a relationship. There is not an equality. The master did not come down to eat with them. Likewise, Masters did not come down. They did not serve their servants. One commentator says, In this case, a scene that otherwise reflects household norms, slaves awaiting the arrival of their lord, actually subverts the basis of the entire slave system. The master undergoes a dramatic status reversal so that he engages in slavish activity on behalf of slaves. And if we think about the later part of Luke in chapter 2 when Jesus says that he is among his disciples as one who serves, we can see this picture of a master is talking about Christ. So what does this gesture mean of Christ being a master who would serve his slaves? It shows us that the heart of God is not just to wash away sin and oppression and all the destruction that comes along with our broken world from a distance. No, God is one who steps in to the mess of our world. God steps into the depths of brokenness, takes it upon him takes it upon himself and breaks it from within. God is not a far removed breaker of chains. He is a close breaker of chains. He is a side-by-side breaker of chains. This is an arm around breaker of chains. This is the God who steps in and breaks it from within. Not one who stands far off, but who says, I am with you, and we will break this. God's way is not to wash his hands of these things because they're beneath him. God's way is to step in and to get dirty. God may say to this broken world, you invented slavery and I will break it. But first, 
I will become a slave and a servant. Because in my kingdom, the least is the greatest. You may have invented sin and I will break it. But first, I will make my son who knew no sin, as the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians, to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You may have brought death into this world and I will break it. But first, my son will die. This is God saying the words of Ruth to each and every one who would call on him. Wherever you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. If to slavery, I will become a slave. If you sin, I will become sin. If you die, I will die. Because wherever you go, I will go with you. Where you go, I go. This is Jesus' name, Emmanuel. God with us in the midst of our world. This is how God humbles himself to become this chain-breaking, countercultural, revolutionary master that creates an entirely new world. But he is not just a God that steps down and identifies with us in lowliness and stays there. This is a God who elevates us once he has stepped down. I think we see this in verse 37, that this is not just a master who is humble. This is a master who brings the wedding home to the servants. He was at a celebration. He was at a feast. He was having a good time. And he brings that home to those who weren't invited. The master was invited to this wedding. The slaves were not. And yet, he's not someone that is so self-absorbed as we can all be at so many times and think, man, that was great. I'm ready to go to bed. He thinks, that was so good. I want them to have some of this. The slave-master dynamic helps us see what Christ is talking about in this upside-down picture of a world that he is painting where a master brings a wedding, brings service to those who serve. We have to think about Christ as bringing a wedding to Siri, as bringing a wedding to Alexa or to Google Assistant. You would say, that's ridiculous. She's a program, not a person. Exactly. The Roman world would have said, they're slaves, not a person. But Christ says, no, no. This is not to elevate Siri to some sort of level of humanity and deity. This is to show what had happened to humanity and slavery in Rome, that you were so debased, that you were so just removed from any kind of worth, that you were seen as nothing. You could be disposed with easily. You were not human. Christ sees those who are not seen as human and calls them dignified, calls them valuable. Christ sees the outcast. He sees the poor. He sees each of us in all the ways that we have degraded ourselves and made ourselves slaves to sin. And he says, dignified worthy. All the ways that you have sinned this week, all the ways that you have sinned already this year, God sees you and says, because of my son, dignified, worthy, valuable, human. Christ is the master who brings the wedding to those that were not invited. He brings heaven he brings God's presence. He brings freedom from sin and death and oppression and all these things. 
because he considers us guests. How can he actually do this? Well, it wasn't easy. Let's be clear about that. Christ brings this wedding home in the most painful way possible, in the most personal way possible, in the most humbling way possible at the cross. Christ brings those who are slaves to sin and death, these living dead, to become alive because he, through his own death, exchanges their life for his. He becomes the slave that they might have the privileges of the master, the privileges of sons and daughters. He brings us to death if we are united with him in faith so that we can be freed from sin and death. He sets slaves free. That is how he does this. He changes who we are. He plays the ultimate servant, the ultimately degraded person. Why so ultimately degraded, would you say? Because in that time, citizens could not be crucified. But slaves could be. Foreigners could be. Those that have no value, no standing, no worth in society, you could crucify them. The God of heaven becomes one without standing in a world he created so that you might have standing in a place that was not yours. Christ dies as a slave for slaves to bring this wedding banquet of life with God to those who didn't merit an invitation. That is the grace of God in this new kingdom. This is the kind of new master that we see in the gospel. Someone who steps into your situation. This is who Christ is. This is not who he might be. The gospel tells us this is who he is. He can already say this is who he will be in this passage because he became human. We just have to look at the incarnation to know how serious God is about actually being this master who steps down. If Jesus was a person, if he was alive, and that's not even in question in the non-believing community. Everybody believes Jesus lived. It's just a question of whether or not they believe he was God. But we're saying if he was alive, he was serious about this text. He meant that he would step down. He meant that he would be side by side with you. He meant he would walk along with you through oppression, through death, through whatever happens. He meant it because he came in the flesh and he is still in the flesh. He still means it. Your sin has not broken his intention to walk alongside you. Your sin has not broken his intention to walk alongside you. I don't know how old you are this morning. However many years you have walked in sin, he is not broken by the many years you have walked in sin any more than he was broken by the many years that Israel walked in sin. Our lives are short. And yet God was willing to have a short life among us. This is who Christ is. If you want to know how serious God is, look at the incarnation. Look at the cross. He means it. This new kind of master brings us a new motivation, brings us new priorities, really, if we think about this final consideration here. What does it mean that this new kind of master changes our society, changes the way we live, changes our relationship to God? What does that mean for us? How should we live now that this is what he has done? Well, verses 35 and 36 and verses 40 speak to the new kind of relationship and priorities that this master creates in our lives in this upside-down kingdom. The first priority, as verse 35 says, is being ready for our master at any time. Even right now, 
even before lunch, even before Monday. It's a Passover paradigm. This is going back to the Exodus. Israel was to be ready at any moment for the angel of the Lord to come, at any moment for them to be led out, because they were expecting this great, life-changing, world-altering event to come. We should have the same expectation because we are expecting a greater exodus, a greater change, a greater world, a greater society. This is the expectation we should have. We need to be ready to leave. There are a lot of things that being ready means, but it means two things that I want to focus on this morning. Being ready to leave and being awake. We've got to be ready to leave. We've got to be ready to leave behind those things that would distract us from Christ. You might say, I don't have time to work on getting my heart right with God. I've got so many other things going on. What you're actually saying is, I've got a different priority. I've got a different master. I've got a different kingdom. Christ can wait. He's not life-changing. He's not worth staying up for. You might say, I need to just, I need to take a break. I need to see where this relationship goes first. I need to see where this job goes first. I need to finish this project. Maybe, but maybe not. If those things keep you from having Christ as your first priority and being ready for him, that's not what this text says you should be doing. Now, you might actually need to take a break. You might need to rest. It takes wisdom to know what it is to be ready for each and every one of us before God. But we have to be ready. Christ has to be the priority. Like Israel and Exodus, we have to be ready. It could come at any moment. We're not guaranteed. We don't know. Like a thief in the night, it will come upon us, which is not to give some sort of picture of fear and scariness, but just to say, you don't know when this is coming, and you're not going to know. So start today. Get ready. And not just be ready to leave, but be awake and not fall asleep to the allures of this world. We need to not become numb to sin. That's what I want to focus on, on being awake. We need to not become numb to sin whether that's as a society or as individuals. We need to not become numb to sin. We can't become numb to oppression and say, that's just the way it is. They're not people, they're slaves. We can't become numb to injustice, to demeaning and overlooking and trivializing Strangers, people that aren't like us, trivializing immigrants that are new among us, or even prioritizing certain immigrants and saying, all y'all should just be like them. This is becoming numb to sin. Or individually, with temptation, with greed, lust, selfishness, pride, we can't become numb to this. And I would say, most of us are numb to pride. If you think you're not, let's look again. You might say, in your life, in your relationship with God, let's just focus on that. I can do this. I got this, God. I can do it on my own. I don't need you. I actually don't want you. I want to show you that I can do this by myself. I don't need Christ. I'm good enough. You should just accept me. That's pride. And that's being asleep to your need of God's grace. And when Christ comes, he will find you, not awake, 
but asleep, and the blessing will not be yours. You might say, I, I have to do this on my own. I have messed up so many times. I am so jacked up. There is no way there is enough grace for me. Well, really, that's pride too. Because you're saying the only way to see me is the way I see me. Not the way God sees me. It takes humility to say, God, if you want to save a sinner like this, save me. We need to be awake to these things, to our condition. We need to be awake to our need for Christ. What is your condition before God this morning? Are you awake? Or have you been sleeping? But how do we actually do this? How do we stay awake? How do we constantly be ready? It's part of the way that this is written in the original language is to give us a sense that we're always to be ready, to be continually ready, not just once and we sort of set things aside. We always have to be ready, but that feels impossible. I really had to wrestle with this this week because it feels like I'm constantly falling asleep. I'm constantly not paying attention. I'm constantly ready to stay here instead of to go out somewhere else, to leave the things that I'm so comfortable with, the things that I want. What if I fall asleep? What if I can't do it? Well, this is actually not a call to rely on yourself this morning. It can't be. If you could rely on yourself for salvation, for pleasing God, then there was no reason for Jesus Christ to come. If you could do it on your own, Christ did not need to come for you. You can't believe in Christ and doing it on your own. Those two are mutually exclusive. There is a lot of complexity in Scripture. That's not one of the things that's complex. (laughs) Listen, if Christ didn't need to come, then yeah, you have to do it on your own. But he came. right? So what he's saying here must not mean do this on your own. It couldn't mean because the very one who came to save us from our inability is saying it. So what's he saying? What's this about? How do we actually stay awake and ready if we're not to rely on ourselves by not relying on ourselves. That's what it means to be awake by looking to Christ, by saying, this is my need. I am awake to my need. Save me. This is the new kind of kingdom where we are awake to our need and we are ready for Christ to fill it. We've got to be ready to leave our doing, ready to leave my saving, ready to leave my building up, my worth, my value, my reputation, my standing before God, and take all of Christ. Because this will not save me, but Christ will save me. It is not relying on ourselves. It is relying on God. The gospel says you don't have to rely on your abilities to save yourself. The dangerous position is not knowing your need this morning. It's thinking you have no need. The dangerous position is not knowing that you need God to save you and you feel like you can't do it. That's being awake. The dangerous position is not feeling like you need God to save you. That's being asleep. You're dreaming. The text says, wake up. You will not save yourself. Christ did not come for you to save yourself. The call is to remain awake to your need and to just take that need to Christ. That's why he came, to meet your needs. 
because we need him. It's not a, I have to do this myself. It's I have to have you. This is Christ saying, stay awake. You need me. And all we say is, I need you. This is just like the blind beggar crying out to Christ, son of David, have mercy on me. He couldn't see Jesus. But Jesus heard him and had mercy. He couldn't heal himself, but Jesus healed him and had mercy. You can't save yourself, but Jesus hears your confession. He hears your calls this morning, and he will save you. Are you awake? Or are you sleeping and thinking you can do this on your own? This is not easy. We continually fall asleep. We're like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Our eyes get heavy. We're like an hour. No. I got maybe five minutes in me. An hour? No. This is going to be hard, but it's actually necessary and good. This Christian thing is going to be hard. It's going to be easier to give it up. It's going to be easier to feel like I can just do it on my own. And partly because then I can do my own thing, right? If God doesn't save me, I'm on my terms, not his terms. I can choose my own desires, my own whatever. I don't have to have a boss. I am the boss. This is going to be hard, but don't fall asleep. Don't sleep on the kingdom is what this text is calling you to this morning, to be awake to your need and to just take that need to God. Don't shrug off how hard this is actually going to be. Don't hear the text saying to you, it's really easy, you should just do this. The text is warning you because this is hard. This is a warning because it's hard. But let us take that difficulty and use it to show us actually just how valuable this thing must be if we're warned to do it. And it shows such a great reward for just staying awake to our need. Because the comparative value of waiting this out weighed against this seismic shift of a master serving slaves is invaluable. You cannot put a price on this. The shift to a new master means all your waiting will be worth it. All of your waiting will be worth it. What are you waiting for this morning? What are you waiting for God to do? All of your waiting will be worth it. All of it. There is nothing you cannot give up for Christ that will not be returned to you a thousandfold when he comes. All of our waiting, every single moment, every single pain, every single trial, all of it will feel like, I can't believe I get all of this for just that little amount. That is what we are promised, because this is who Christ is. It's going to be hard, but it will be so good. So how do we more concretely do this to to come to a close? How do we live into this state of readiness to being awake, to seeing this new kingdom, this new master? I think the first thing we have to do is pray. Because prayer reminds us that we actually need God to do something for us. Instead of just, this is my five-step program, these are my plans, just say, I'm going to pray. I need you, God. I need you to show up. And actually, we have more of an advantage than the servants in this parable because we can still talk to our master while he's gone. We don't know when he's coming home, but he is always with us. Talk to God. Ask him to meet you in your need. And particularly, be honest with him. We need to take this great new kingdom, this new master, and we need to take these priorities to our current priorities and say, where do these things actually not line up? 
Where does my schedule not line up with being awake to Christ's coming? Does my calendar at all reflect time for me to get my heart right with God? Or is that just a maybe once a week? Maybe I'll show up every now and then. Maybe I'll read scripture every now and then. Or is that a constant priority? Is it a first priority? We need to take this to our bank accounts. Does the way we spend our money reflect that we think Christ is actually coming back and it could be soon? Are we turning away from these old priorities and turning towards the new priority of Christ? Because we know that when he comes, he will break our world apart. That the system we have been a part of will no longer be the system. That the identity we have had as slaves will no longer be our identity. Because we aren't slaves. In Christ, you are no longer slaves to sin and death, Paul says. We are sons and daughters now. And sons and daughters inherit, they live, they know their father's business. You know what will be yours. But we've got to watch out for each other as well. I think that's another practical thing, that these servants were to stay awake together. Likewise, we need to stay awake together. We need to be checking in on one another. Spouses, we need to be talking to each other throughout the week and say, how are you doing? Just leave space. Is there space in your schedule with your friends, with your kids, with your family to say, how are you doing? Are we making that space? Are we having that kind of mindset? Because Christianity is a team sport. It is not an individual sport, right? The Olympics are coming to a close. We've been watching some amazing things happen. But it's not an individual sport. It is a team sport. We stay awake together because we will be saved together. You don't have to do this on your own. So don't. If you're not in relationship with people, have a conversation. If you're not in a small group, get in a small group. Come to Fourth Monday Prayer. Come to the event. If if these things aren't working for you, figure out something that does, but get involved because you will fall asleep on your own. We all have spiritual narcolepsy and we need to be woken up. And lastly, just take this change to others. We have a God that has brought a wedding to us that we did not deserve. We will never deserve it. But we can always take it to those who likewise do not deserve it. One of the ways that we can internalize this priority, this great change, is to live as if someone has actually done this great thing for us and share it with someone else. Share the goodness of being set free from being a slave, from being given dignity, being given value. It means we are generous. Is generosity reflected in your life? As just a closing thought. When you tip, are you generous? When you give, are you generous? Do you give? Is generosity the inclination of your heart? We're not saying that we should be unwise with our finances, but are you ready? Are you ready to go? Are you awake? Are you ready? Because Christ will come. He will come at a time we do not expect, but he will bring this great life-changing thing with him. That's good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are one that would humble yourself. You are one that would step down and walk alongside us. You would break our chains from within as one who knows what it is to feel the irons on your wrist.
God, would you help us this morning to stay awake to our need for you, to stay awake to the fact that we are so prone to try and do this on ourselves and so ingrained in us is this idea that we have to do it by ourselves. And we'll just continually fall asleep. God, would you help us to be awake? We need you and we know that you do not cast out any that come to you. So help us to have an assurance of your goodness this week. In your son's name we pray. Amen.